Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories and lots of other good things like that from literally the coolest places on the planet. Yes, you're here with me again, Jack Buckingham, and today we are not going north and we're not going south to the South Pole either. We are journeying into a new area of the cryosphere, which is, of course, rubbish drumroll, the Alpine regions. Yes, for the first time we are venturing into the lovely mountains, which are an area of the world which, of course, make up another part of the cryosphere and polar research. My guest today is a lovely individual from the German Research Center for Geosciences. She is kind of a geologist, kind of a glaciologist, kind of all of these lovely things. And she is interested in looking at the impacts that climate change is having on these mountainous regions. She uses earth surface processes and landscape evolution and, you know, looks at mountains in the past million years to see how what they're going to look like in the future is what I've taken away from it, <laughs> is what you're going to hear about today in the podcast. We also have some lovely fieldwork fun times from the Himalayas. I talked to her all about what it's like to live there and work there and conduct fieldwork there, all the highs and the lows and the hair-raising experiences that that involves. It's a good one today, so stay tuned and thank you again for coming back to Polar Times. Okay, people of all genders, please welcome to the stage, Elizabeth Orr. Hi, Lizzie. How's it going? Hi. Very good, thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for coming on to Polar Times. So this is the very first bit of the podcast. We like to call it the icebreaker. It's just where we get to know you, our guest. So... Basically, who are you and how did you come to Polar Life? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great what you're doing with Polar Time. So yeah, my name is uh, Lizzie Orr or Elizabeth Orr, and I'm a postdoc at the German Research Center for Geosciences. And I am in the geomorphology section. So I, my background is in geology. Uh, glacial geology specifically and I suppose my research in general is focused on mountain environments and so actually that is sort of my connection there to the polar life so the reason why I'm sort of interested in apex and sort of polar science more broadly is that I'm part of the alpine cryosphere group and so a lot of my research is based in what we call the third pole, which is the Himalayas. So there's my connection. So though I don't work in sort of the Arctic or Antarctic, like many of the members of APEX do, um, I, I am sort of interested broadly in the science that's conducted there. But yeah, so as I said, I'm a geomorphologist, which basically looks at how surface processes um, and climate and tectonics affects our, our Earth's surface um, over lots of different timescales. Awesome. So I suppose this is an interesting concept because this is not something that I had really thought about before I started my own polar research, that mountains and alpine places constitute this third pole. What exactly do you mean by the cryosphere? Yeah, well, so I suppose uh, for, from my perspective, uh, my background is in sort of the glacial side of things. So I look at glaciers and, and sort of ice and permafrost and sort of how these different um, uh, things, I suppose, uh, affect how fast our landscapes erode. And what I should say, or rather, you know, why we're interested in mountain environments is that actually our high altitude uh, mountain 
settings are the most vulnerable to climate change. And so there's an awful lot of information out there about how climate change is going to affect the poles, the Arctic, Antarctic, and how we're going to see a lot of melting, which has obviously huge impacts upon our, our global um, communities. That said, actually, our mountain environments are the areas that seem to be recording the change first. They're the most sensitive. And so, of course, what we see is a huge degradation to the cryosphere itself. So we've got huge amounts of glacial melting. What that causes, obviously, we have the environmental conditions change and we see climate change happening. Basically, that's going to affect our water resources and also natural hazards. So landsliding and debris flows, avalanching um, and flooding. So that's why I'm interested in the third pole, I suppose, because it's a really nice snapshot of what is to come, sadly, in other areas of 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 our Earth. Most of our listeners probably know already, but just in case you don't, uh, what is a, a, like a glacier? How do you picture that if you've never seen one before? Yeah, okay. Well, glaciers do look different uh, in different places. But yeah, so by and large, it's basically just a large sort of block of ice uh, that carries a lot of sediment um, and they um, range in size. So you get different types of glaciers. So of course you have um, small little alpine glaciers that you might see in the Alps, in the European Alps, for example. And then you might have these larger valley glaciers and these can sort of um, fill huge valleys, um, say in the Himalayas. And sometimes they can be covered in sediment. So actually they don't even look like glaciers because it just looks like a, a bunch of sediment, a bunch of rubble. And then sometimes they look really pristine and so I'm sure lots of people have seen these pictures of these huge glaciers that uh, feed into uh, into the ocean, into the sea. And so these are sort of um, affected by tides and, and sort of rising sea levels. And then on the larger scale, of course, you then have ice sheets, which then sort of is why, and, and sea ice. And so that is sort of then feeds more directly into sort of what many people have been working on um, in the poles. Um, but my research tends to focus on the continental side of things um, and looking specifically at smaller ice patches um, in our in our mountain ranges. Okay, so why don't you tell us a bit more about what exactly your research is doing? What are you focusing on right now? Yeah, okay, so I suppose what a lot of my research is focused in on is the effects of climate change or climatic change over the last 2.6 million years, so throughout the quaternary period, how climate and how climate change during that time has affected our landscapes and more specifically looking at glaciers and and sort of and how um, huge shifts in climate cause a lot of melting but then of course a lot of glacial advances but what I should say is that as a glacial geologist I'm actually interested in the sediments because I think we can tell a lot from the actual sediments this is why I'm sort of a a geologist really rather than a, a hardcore glaciologist and so I look at for example how glaciers erode landscapes how fast these catchments are changing how fast these valleys are eroding over time, which has has big implications because, of course, if you're eroding um, a landscape really fast, what you're doing then is you're moving a lot of sediment through the system and eventually it will get to the sea. Uh, But of course, in the time that it takes to travel down, it can cause a lot of problems. It can silt up rivers. It can cause flooding. um, It can destroy uh, settlements, um, huge landslides. And there's lots in in sort of Nepal and and India that sort of have completely decimated um, sort of villages and things like that. So uh, I use a combination of different methods um, to basically try to understand why we have glaciers where we do, how sensitive they are to climate change, 
how fast do they erode the landscape and what might these landscapes look like in the future under present conditions? And of course, like many geologists, we use the past to tell us something about how the future might be. And so what we do then is we look at sort of how past glaciers have behaved, how past climate has affected our landscapes. And we use that information to think about, okay, if we apply that to the current setting, what might that mean then for the Himalayas, the Central Andes, for example, the European Alps, sort of how how might our landscape start to look moving forward? So you mentioned just then the quaternary period, which is the last 2.6 million years. So, Correct, yes. So we still, we're still in the quaternary period now in terms of geological We are, yes. Time? Yes, are. yes, okay, yes. How can you tell how glaciers have behaved in the past? That's a good question. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a few different ways that you can do this, but certainly from my perspective, as I said, there's lots of sediment, right, in, in a in a glacier. And so what you might notice if you've ever been into, and actually this isn't just specific to really hardcore mountain ranges. I mean, you can go to the Lake District and see this in the UK. You can go to this um, in other sort of less um, insane landscapes, and you can still see evidence of of these things. So basically, as a glacier moves within your valley. It moves a lot of sediment in the same way that when you're sweeping your kitchen. Now, if you're certainly sweeping my kitchen, uh, you know, there's a lot of dust and various bits and pieces. And so eventually you basically push all of the material into one corner. And that's the same idea as what a, a glacier does. So it basically gathers all its sediment and it pushes it down and it creates creates like a little ridge at the bottom of its of its snout at the, at the toe of the glacier. And we call that a moraine. And what that does is it marks the point when, OK, this is how far the glacier can came at this particular time. And so we can use different techniques basically to date those landforms. And so then what you can say is, okay, you know, 100,000 years ago, the glacier was at this location. And so actually what's really cool is that you can go to different places, different valleys. So for example, one of uh, my research areas is the source of the Ganges. The source of the Ganges is a glacier called the Gangotri Glacier. It's a really interesting place because you have lots of people that come there for, for religious purposes. They go on pilgrimages because if you bathe in the water, it's meant to relieve you of your sins. And then of course you have sort of recreational people that go for climbing because there's some really crazy mountains there too. And then of course you have the research do. So it's an interesting, eclectic mix of people that go there. But actually, as you walk up the valley, you see a series of ridges. And they all, as you go up, these ridges get younger and younger. And what this records is how a glacier has moved back in time. So we know, for example, that, you know, the Gangotri Glacier, for example, has retreated kilometers over only just a few thousand years, which is which is very, very rapid retreat. So that's sort of one way in which we think about how glaciers have changed over time, and sort of, again, for quaternary timescales. When you just yeah. said moraine there, which I was a, a little bit uh, triggered by a memory, my, my dad's a geography teacher, and we used to ah. walking in the lakes. So it's <laughs> like that's a moraine yeah. that's a u-shaped valley <laughs> yeah. no i mean so yeah i'm actually i'm from the lake district and um, my i uh, i think uh, i definitely annoyed my dad a few times because we go on a lot of of walking and and there was a point in my sort of higher education where I started to be able to absolutely identify these things. And I mean, he feigned interest. I think, I think, I think, <laughs> but then, I mean, who knows, he might actually be taking that knowledge and telling other people. Passing it on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's what we now do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So that sounds kind of straightforward. You know, as a glacier shrinks, you can see it's different moraines, but yeah. you know, 2.6 million years is a really 
long time and might be demonstrating just a bit, not enough knowledge here, but <laughs> there have been many kind of ice ages in that time, you know, short, and then we have these interglacial periods, which we've talked about on a past podcast. Doesn't it get terribly confused if glaciers in the cryosphere are shrinking and growing and, you know, how can you tell that really one moraine is older than another? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, can, it can be a bit of a nightmare. So of course you can't do it everywhere. And so there are places where it's maybe not as clear. What I should say is that glaciers are pretty destructive, uh, or they can be. So sometimes they can be sort of frozen to the bed. And so in fact, actually not a great deal of activity happens over certain periods of time. But actually, as sort of my analogy of uh, you know, pushing dust around your kitchen or, or whatever else, like, you know, they can destroy a lot. So what I would say is that typically when you go to, I mean, you have to go to sort of semi-arid uh, mountain environments are often the best because they preserve a lot more of the evidence. Because of course, if you think about it, if you're going into really wet conditions, there's probably going to be a lot more erosion. So you're going to destroy a lot more evidence of things. There's going to be a lot more energy in the system that can push boulders and material out of the system. For something where it's drier and perhaps there's less precipitation, in theory, you can then actually have things sticking around for much longer. But that said, of course, uh, you know, you can have one glacier that sort of extends out, it goes sort of 10 kilometers down your valley, it dumps a lot, lots of stuff at the bottom. Then it retreats back, as you said, within, within an interglacial, for example. Then it might then re-advance as we enter another glacial. But actually what can happen then is it completely overrides the previous moraine, destroys it, you never see it again. So actually when we go to a valley and we start to try to understand the glacial history and sort of how sensitive is this glacier to um, changes in climate, we're actually only seeing a small snapshot. So quite a lot of um, glacial records are really only extending over the last maybe up to about 300, 400,000 years. And we do have sort of higher resolution records that look just at the Holocene. So that's sort of the last 11,000 years. And so maybe it's better, well, I think lots of people sort of focus more on the last 100,000 years of, of glacial history because there's actually just more evidence of it. And so we're sort of using sort of the more recent past, if we consider geological timescales, we consider the more recent past and think about sort of how, yeah, glaciers are, are changing of that time rather than the 2.6 million years, which of course, I mean, it's very difficult to find records of that. But then also more importantly, we don't have the dating methods to extend that, that, that time period yeah yeah in geology it's like a hundred thousand years it's like yesterday and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes so i just wanted to talk about um some of the methods you use i'm glad you just mentioned these um dating methods i was looking on your website and you talk about using sedimentological geochronometric and numerical modeling techniques to do your dating yeah so for the dating specifically um i suppose so of, of course many of your listeners will probably have heard about radiocarbon dating and so that's frequently used in um, archaeology and various biology geology too uh, but of course the fundamental the most important thing about that is that you need organic material um, and then, of course, you can, you know, get, get some, some nice ages and you can say something about the material or, or whatever it is that you're dating. But sadly, in lots of polar environments, um, organic material is scarce and it can be a little bit uncertain as to how that organic material gets there in the first place. So, of course, we have to look to other methods, right? Because we can't necessarily 
walk up to these uh, um, glaciers and think, oh, well, I'll definitely be able to find something that I can feasibly date. So one example would be luminescence dating, which I'm sort of uh, not, I don't work with directly, but what a lot of my research has been using is a concept or, or a method called cosmogenic isotope geochemistry. Wow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so essentially what it does, I mean, it, it can be used in two ways, but this particular method can be used to give you um, an exposure age of a landform or um, some bedrock. So you can sample the rock itself directly, uh, but it can also be used uh, as a way of measuring erosion rates. So, so lots of scientists use it in both ways. So I, I've used it in both manners so both to define timings of glaciation but I've also used it to quantify erosion so that is the and, and that is quite a common method because I suppose one of the crucial things about this method is that you need to take rock samples but you just need quartz in in my case because with just to do with the type of isotope I don't want to go get into it too much but um, quartz is everywhere it's one of the most abundant minerals and so what's great is that there's a good chance that when you go into these mountain settings that you're going to be able to get material that you that you need which of course with the radiocarbon sadly that's not a guarantee. So the quartz tells you how fast somewhere has been eroding or will erode? Uh, Well well, I suppose sort of an easy way to think about it um, is um, so the concept as I said is called cosmogenic isotope geochemistry and so this idea is that we have cosmic rays that bombard our earth's atmosphere okay i will be very very brief with this but essentially what it does is these cosmic rays enter our atmosphere and they hit the surface of our earth and what happens is you see um the the cosmic rays are basically charged particles and they kick out certain component parts of your rock surface so they'll hit the quartz in my case and what they do then is they create or produce an isotope called beryllium 10. So it's the same concept as, say, sunburn. So the longer you're exposed to the sun, in the same case, because I mean, I'm ginger and (laughs) pale skin. So the longer I'm in the sun, the redder and redder and redder I get. So with the same idea where then with these rock surfaces is the longer that the rock is exposed to cosmic rays, the more beryllium we produce. So the more sunburn we have and therefore the older or the longer the exposure age is. So of course, if we sample a boulder on a moraine, for example, and it's been exposed for 100,000 years, it has accumulated this isotope called beryllium-10. And so we do lots of um, sort of other calculations to work it out. But essentially, you can take this concentration, so how much of this isotope you have, and you can say, okay, cool, this has been exposed for this long. So that's sort of the principle. And with the same way, we can do that with erosion. So we can say, you know, well, with um, less isotope, less concentration, it hasn't been exposed very long, which probably means that there's lots of stuff going on in the valley. So it's been moving through and it hasn't had time to accumulate. I hope that's made makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah. So you're testing the, uh, how sunburned these rocks are now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, basically. How long they've been exposed, yeah, to those yes. surface, I suppose. Yeah, no, Absolutely. that makes total yeah. sense. Um, I suppose, so you're measuring erosion to understand the landscape now yeah and the landscape in the past mm-hmm. how do you use this information to kind of predict the future are you building kind of models of these these valleys and movement or yeah so so people 
So people are, absolutely. And so I think sort of a big move now, of course, is that, you know, we take field data and we try to incorporate it into numerical models to sort of uh, forward, uh, sort of predict, I suppose, in some ways, um, the, the what's going to happen. But sadly, one of the big issues is in these environments, we don't have that much data. Um, so one sort of the main focus, certainly of my PhD and now into the postdoc, is that, you know, we need that field data to be able to, to even sort of start to think about this stuff. And what I should say is that, it, you know, timescales are difficult because um, so when you look at, say, erosion rates, often we're looking at them over thousands of years um, using these geochemical methods. But of course, somebody might go into a valley. And if you then just uh, another approach to thinking about erosion is people will just go into a valley and they'll count the number of landslides and they'll come up with a frequency of like, okay, there are this number of landslides per year, which means that there's probably this amount of erosion going on. So what you need in order to get like a good picture as to how fast these valleys are eroding is that you need to sort of have ways of measuring erosion over different timescales. Um, and of course you can, people have done it where they've taken erosion rates from the last 100,000, uh, well, the last sort of 10, 20,000 years. And they've been able to demonstrate that those erosion rates are the same or different or less than present day erosion rates that you can uh, derive from modern samples. So you can uh, look at sediment volumes uh, in, in, in rivers, for example, and you can say something about how fast the rivers are eroding. Uh, you can as I said, uh, look at how, how the frequency of landslides and sort of what that means for the erosion of, of the valleys. So, yeah, but I think ultimately the aim is to basically try and build a bigger picture or better picture of how fast uh, these, these, these valleys are changing. Um, but we need to do that in many different ways before we can sort of really confidently start saying, okay, we're definitely, this is what's going to happen, you know, in the next 100, 200, 300 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is then then is there any indication in anything that you might have seen or read? I suppose that current rates of erosion are, or landscape change has sped up in our present time due to any anthropogenic human activities, or because the climate's changing quicker at the moment? Is there is that a thing, or is that impossible to tell? No, I mean, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I mean, there's lots of studies that have sort of uh, people a lot more impressive than me that have been able to say, you know, goodness me, you know, we are seeing increased rates of, of erosion for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, with increased storminess um, and uh, higher rates of precipitation, we're seeing increased flooding. There's a greater frequency of glacial lake outburst floods, for example, things like that. So absolutely. I think sort of on the more local level, Level. There was a couple of valleys that I've been to in the Himalayas this is over the last maybe five years. And each time there are differences, there are changes where footpaths that I used to be able to go on, I cannot go on anymore. So access has completely changed. People, things have been cut off because, you know, you've seen these huge failures and landslides have occurred and we can't, we can't get further up. So, so yeah, I mean, in terms of, of seeing change now, it's absolutely happening. And I think that that's why mountains are mountain environments are a great place to look because you you it the changes are so rapid that that you can guarantee that you're going to go there year on year and you're going to see sadly sadly um quite significant damaging changes or changes yeah sure and yeah. within your field of geology which looks at um you know the earth i suppose over such long 
time periods and you see these peaks and troughs in everything in you know ice cover in carbon levels etc is there more temptation to just be like oh this the changes we're seeing now are just part of the cycle or is it is the attitude definitely like humans are making it worse that's a loaded question (laughs) no i mean (laughs) (laughs) no no i mean i think it's the the right questions to ask it does me i mean you know i think i think as humans we are completely accountable for a lot of this change and i would say that just on a personal level um absolutely that that humans are responsible for speeding up these processes and that can be whether it be following the industrial revolution and the increasing of of, uh, we're messing with our atmosphere so it can be just on the grand scale like that but it can also just be the way in which we behave in our landscapes and the resources we take and and things like that 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 have a massive impact and so yeah i 100 percent believe that you know our the our the human intervention or rather the the effects that we have on our landscapes and our environments are hugely damaging and yes perhaps over long time scales you do see these peaks and troughs in you know in climate in 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 glacial periods but i struggle to see how we would see all of these things happening all at once with you know huge amounts of sort of socioeconomic implications uh, without us actually being part of it like i we are yeah it's, it, it is we 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 are very much to blame i think with how quickly all of this has happened Okay, that brings us to the next bit of the podcast, which we like to call Field Work Fun Times. And you've led us into it beautifully, having just mentioned then that you have been to the Himalayas uh, a few times. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what kind of field work have you done and where? And what, were you, what were you, exactly were you doing in the field that contributes to your current or past research yeah sure okay so yeah I mean I think my field work actually began in the, in sort of northwest Scotland and so I've sort of done my fair share of very wet coring of bogs and things like that so I mean I've, I've done stuff in the UK because that's where I'm from and of course I think that being part of whether it be geology or geography and, or environmental science there's a good chance you're going to do field trips and things like that so that's where I sort of started so I did my PhD in the US and so of course then that also meant that I did some field work um, in sort of uh, Southern California, various places in Ohio as well, a little bit more sort of hardcore geology there as opposed to sort of the, the glacial stuff. That said, the big ice sheet came down and sort of ended uh, in Ohio. So there's a quick side question. Sorry, yeah. I should have asked maybe at the beginning. Is there a difference between geology and geomorphology and geoscience or is it nuance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, th- I think probably when you split it up, you could probably split it all. I mean, so I think it also depends upon your country. So right. for example, I suppose in some ways, so geomorphology comes under the umbrella of, of geoscience, but I would also say that geography, physical geography also comes under that umbrella. Geomorphology is the study of landforms and landscapes and, and why our surface looks the way it does. Geology for me encompasses a whole range of things. So it can include, it includes geomorphology, but it also includes paleoecology. It includes tectonics. It includes, to some extent, oceanography and, and sort of things like that. So when I say geomorphology, I'm being quite specific here about talking about the processes that affect our Earth's surface. Sure. 
Okay, yeah. So I suppose my my sort of main field experience uh, in terms of my own research initially started out in the Himalayas. I'm currently now working in the Central Andes. But for my the Himalayan stuff, which is perhaps more relevant for Apex and the polar stuff, that basically involved I think it was three or four years worth in the end of about three months of field work each year Um, and so what we would do myself and a colleague of mine Dr. Saurav Saha we would fill our backpacks and basically we would go on these expeditions and we would hike up these valleys for you know a couple of weeks take samples whether it be from the glacier itself or moraines as i've talked about or other projects that we have and then we would hike all of that back down and then start our next valley um so it's pretty grueling field work um carrying and, rocks in your rucksack <laughs> yeah so but it's, it's good fun i mean i think uh, it's sort of the simplicity i think of field work sometimes is is is, is quite refreshing because of course we you know as soon as you return to to your institution or what have you you maybe have lab work or or you have you know some sort of other other responsibilities teaching and it's quite nice to have three months where all you have to do is sort of get up pack your tent up and walk a little bit further and get some samples or what have you and and that kind of thing so I, I I really enjoy field work and for me it's sort of what's motivated a huge amount of my career so I know that lots of people in the polar sciences talk about this too that their trips to say Antarctica or what have you have like massively affected how they view science and why they're doing what they're doing and I would say the same for me I mean different location but um the same kind of same kind of thing yeah okay forgive the uh, geology pun which I've just been planning <laughs> I have to get down into this <laughs> excellent you should get that on a t-shirt geology rocks awesome so traveling to the Himalayas that's incredible just to start with fact that you've done it frequently is even even more so so uh, where do you even where do you fly to and what 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 were your study sites called i mean it will mean nothing to me personally but maybe to some of our listeners they might know them or know of them etc yeah yeah so a lot of my research is based in the northwest himalaya um so mainly in in northern india so what i would do is get on um flight to to new delhi and then basically because of the altitude i mean we get up to about six thousand meters when you were at sort of the maximum elevations that we were going which is pretty much the threshold of where you can sort of conduct yourself safely without um, assistance without without oxygen so of course that means then that it's very very important to acclimatize so what we would do then is travel from new delhi up north and then basically there is a, a town called manali and i forget exactly how high this is um, but basically we just take our time and work slowly up uh, and eventually we get up to a town uh, or city I guess called called Ley which is spelled L-E-H and it's really cool because there's a huge amount of there's quite a large Tibetan influence uh, in this area uh, there's lots of monasteries and things like that so it's an interesting area to look at how humans have interacted with these sort of pretty harsh landscapes because of course they're very very cut off so actually just on a human level it's quite an interesting place to conduct research but yeah so that's sort of that's how we get there but we get there by road so there's a, a Manali to Lay highway uh, which is terrifying um, I wouldn't recommend anybody particularly drive on it and there's a huge uh, I think it's the highest motorable road and so oh, 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 oh. 
in the world yeah i think it's in the world and it's often when the weather's bad the passes are closed because of, of of the conditions so it's a pretty precarious journey but it's important to do that slowly you can get a flight there which i did do the first year but what that does then is you're basically going from sea level to sort of four thousand meters and i think that sort of takes its toll on its body and i'm getting on so i think you know with age, I feel like it doesn't get easier. So like I now like <laughs> take my time and work my way slowly back up to the top. So yeah. Oh, what time of, what time of year were you doing your film? So typically would go around May time. So would do sort of May or June, July, August. Um, don't really want to stay too much longer than that. You can't really go earlier than that because the uh, all the passes close. So the weather, the the monsoon, and and sort of we get a huge, there's a lot of snow. So uh, it's important to try to time it. Right. Um, and then also the sort of avalanche season that you want to avoid as well. So it's sort of trying to work it out. <laughs> yes. So trying to get it. Yeah. So sort of May to August tends to be the, the sweet spot. And it also happens to um, sort of coincide, of course, with summer holidays for various institutes and stuff like that. So it's quite a convenient time to go. OK, awesome. And um, obviously the Himalayas, the, you know, these kind of mountainous alpine places are not the safest environment. Obviously, they're an extreme environment so what are the worst kind of safety issues apart from avalanche season <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean so so part of of some of my projects was that you had to get onto the glacier itself so of course glaciers have these huge cracks which we call uh, crevasses or crevices right um and so you know it's really important to conduct yourself safely on these on these surfaces so so there's there's that that threat, of course. Um, then there is, if you think about sort of what we've already, the themes that we've talked about in terms of increased glacial melt, the rivers are like rivers I've never seen before. And so, I mean, they're absolutely huge. So, you know, even just crossing a river is, is an ordeal in itself. So, um, you know, being sort of those are the problems and then yeah so avalanching debris flows flooding or just rivers in general the glaciers itself and then also just the weather in general i mean you're at high altitude it's cold uh it's often windy um so it's very very important that you kind of keep aware of the weather conditions over the you know few days ahead of what you're doing so that you know that you're not about to kind of walk into a, a bit of a storm or what have you so it can change in the mountains can't it just like that that's oh it, yep yeah yeah can you just give me an impression of what it was like like can you describe what it's like hiking through the himalayas <laughs> <laughs> someone who's never to the biggest mountains i've done maybe alps i suppose yeah um, yeah i, I mean so just on a different scale entirely yeah yeah um i i think i think yeah the big thing i take from it is you realize how small and insignificant you are and like it is it is slightly overwhelming and i think a lot of the times you do have to pinch yourself and it doesn't change like i thought well maybe you know i go back and it's going to be less impressive but truthfully it doesn't i mean it's still it's a very humbling place and i think that there's I have a huge amount of respect for people that live and work in these environments I mean like I mean I work in them for sure but I mean it's sort of three months of the year and then I get to go home and you know drink all the tea in the world and and mm -hmm. kind of stay warm whereas of course a lot of these people I mean their livelihoods are in these environments and and you know they, they have to survive so yeah I mean I think overall my impression I mean what we do is quite intense so of course it's a lot of hiking carrying things it's across long periods of time you're spending it with a very small group 
group of people and, you know, it has its other challenges. But I think overwhelmingly, I mean, it's just, it's just a privilege. It's just a privilege to be part of. And, um, and I just really, it's inspired me to continue doing what I'm doing. And, and I would love it if other people got to see these environments. Cause I think it's very easy in the classroom to talk about, oh, you know, Everest is this big mountain and blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, I think that it's, it's really cool. We've taken a few students out in the past and, you know, their whole understanding of the earth and geology or geography or, or whatever has completely changed because of these experiences. And I, yeah, I mean, and I think overall in terms of fieldwork experience, I think my overwhelming thought of it is just tiredness and <laughs> just, and just, uh, but, but being content. And I mean, I think that uh, sort of some of the best parts of my career have been spent in the field so yeah have you seen Everest yeah I have actually but it was more of a that uh, was like a personal trip but yeah I have seen the top of it from from a very far distance um well you know, uh, you're in the neighborhood why would you <laughs> But yeah, but I mean, I think, I mean, I suppose also that touches on another problem of, and of course, like, I think Everest uh, is obviously, uh, I can see why it's a big attraction for people, but there's huge problems with regards to the way it's, way it's managed in terms of, of waste, but then also making sure that the uh, local people that support this industry are looked after and catered for. And so, you know, I think that there is always a darker side to some of these things. And so it's really important as researchers that when we're going in these environments that we respect that, um, you know, that we don't leave anything behind and that we treat everybody there with, with respect and care. Um, and we do like to try to employ people sometimes for the bigger expeditions to try to encourage, kind of put money back into the economy, because I think that's really important. So we do often sort of hire local people to, to help with some of the, the sampling and things like that. So, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I went to a talk um, a few years ago about someone who had climbed Everest, and you know, one of the take-homes that I remember from that was, you know, the issues that it has of, I suppose, with tourism and, uh, you know, people. It wasn't glory hunting, but it was like that similar kind yeah, of, you know, dragging no. or something. Or <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think I think dangerously unsafe is what. I remember from that. Maybe we'll have someone on talking. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think I think it's I think it's important, and I think that more broadly for like polar environments too. And I mean, I mean, you know, I think that tourism is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. And I think that it brings a huge amount of money to lots of these different communities. But I think that, but I think that there is a point when we do have to ask ourselves, is there a more sustainable or a, a better way of conducting ourselves? Um, and yeah, I mean, there's not a right answer to this, of course, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, in, in, in the time that I've worked in the Himalayas, the area that I specifically worked in has gone from being completely cut off to now having Wi-Fi. Um, and, you know, and so development is happening at such a fast rate. And of course, as soon as you start introducing these different infrastructure, you're going to start to see waves of tourists. Um, and if, yeah, and, and you, that, that can be good, of course, uh, but there can be these big knock-on effects that can cause, be quite damaging to people and the environment. So, yeah. Did you have to do any kind of training, any mountaineering, mountain leader kind of stuff before you went the first time or since, since you went back or was it all kind of relying on the people that you hire and went with and et cetera? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think it's something that I'm very, very uh, interested and sort of passionate about because I think that field training is incredibly important. In terms of my own experience, actually, no, I wasn't required to do anything. Um, and I think that perhaps in some ways is 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 quite worrisome. Um, and it's certainly not me uh, specifically. It's not it's not anything to do with the institutions that I've been affiliated with. It's just sort of the that there maybe isn't uh, enough uh, put in place to to kind of make sure that any student or researcher or what have you uh, is has the appropriate training before going. That said, I was uh, I grew up in the Lake District, and so I was quite confident when it came to uh, walking and hiking and camping and things like that. So all of that was sort of relatively familiar. But of course, you know, it's very very different than when you sort of take this sort of you know 22 year old girl and you stick her you know in the middle of nowhere in the ice and the snow and you're basically sort of having to do um sort of uh you know climb various quite challenging things so so no i haven't um i am first aid trained and things like that so so that is important but but yeah i mean sadly not and i think that that is something that I believe that if I was to, you know, I'd really like to stay in academia. And if I have students in the future, this is something that I'm really, really going to focus on and, um, and make sure that everyone feels comfortable conducting the research that they are. And I'm sure there's lots and lots of uh, people that have received this training, which is fantastic. And I think that's great. But uh, sadly, I think a lot of the time it costs money and we're already strapped for cash as it is. Um, and so I think that we're maybe not always given the opportunity to get this training, even if, if we want to. Yeah. Did you ever have any hairy kind of moments in the field? Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody does. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's always, I mean, you can be the best intentioned person. You can have all of this that you have, can have completely the correct equipment. You can have uh, the best group of people around you and there's still going to be stuff that happens. So, yeah. So I would say that, yeah, every single time I've been, there's always been something that's happened that is a little bit, you know, but I think that, that's why training is important. And, and so my, my thought is that, you know, if, if you have a group of people that are generally experienced uh, in the environment, then hopefully you can sort of limit the, the damage. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just unavoidable. Uh, I don't want to go into too many specifics because I don't want to get, you know, um, that doesn't, doesn't just involve me, um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's been some fairly hairy um, river crossings, glacier crossings. There's been a few incidents with yaks, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> so, so hazards. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, providing you learn from perhaps, Perhaps the mistakes that you've made and and like certainly I think that's what a PhD is all about as well is, is learning things and working out how to become an independent researcher and so one of those is of course you know if, if your project does involve some form of field work it's learning how to conduct yourself in the field safely um, and so I, I hope that people out there that are doing their PhDs or master's degrees are getting that mentorship and that the mentoring and the, and the training that they need to do their job safely. You, you have to tell me one of the incidents with yaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> well, I mean, so I suppose the, uh, the, the abridged version was that um, I uh, wasn't very well uh, in one of the valleys and my water purification system had stopped working and I hadn't realized it was definitely mine. It wasn't anybody else's. Um, and so I consumed some water, probably from a yak that uh, caused quite a lot of problems. But uh, then a colleague of mine tried to convince me that it would be a good idea to try to ride a yak down the uh, d- back down because I wasn't really in a fit state to, to get down uh, the valley myself and I just point back refused well because mainly because the yaks are not designed to have people on them and I think you imagine that they would be huge but actually they're basically just big dogs I mean they're not very big so I was sort of felt a bit terrible if I was trying to like <laughs> straddle a yak trying to get down these uh, down this valley so so yeah so thankfully managed to avoid avoid that so ended up walking down myself which was uh okay but yeah so that's one example i suppose (laughs) (laughs) so um, just one final question uh which i should have asked earlier but when you're doing your field work are you camping in the wild where are you staying where are you sleeping yeah yeah yeah. we're we're camping um so uh we just uh everybody has their own um tent that they take um it becomes your little area of solace or whatever because of course it's the only moment that you're truly alone uh in these environments so so yeah so we do camp and then we uh generally carry our food and everything uh in um for the longer trip so if we're going into uh, a larger valley system say for example the gango tree glacier which was huge uh we might then hire some some local people that would um help with some of the cooking because we would do it on our own if it was a smaller just a, a shorter period of time but for for the longer periods of time it's really really important to make sure that you're eating enough and stuff so so we would get local people hire local people to come up and 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 cook for us which was always a treat because i'm a, i'm an okay cook but at altitude my skills definitely deteriorate whereas these guys are able to produce pretty pretty mean meals somehow don't know how they do it um, but yeah so Oh, that's so, I would love to go. I'd love to go one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think what, what's interesting there, I mean, I, I was listening to some of what you'd said about like uh, in the previous episode about microplastics and stuff like that. And yeah, you know, I don't think microplastics is just, I mean, you could apply a lot of what you were thinking about to the cryosphere. And I mean, there's a huge amount of pollution and microplastic issues in uh, glacier systems. So you know, all you need to do is play that your cards right, and you could probably yeah. <laughs> find a way of getting up uh, some of these There's mountains. Probably someone already doing it. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so this is the last bit of the podcast we like to call the public plug. This is where we give you our guests just the chance to promote anything that you would like to use it as your platform to address the general public. So two minutes uninterrupted. Do you have a topic that you want to talk about? Well, I suppose it actually just feeds on from what we've already been talking about. So if that's okay. So it's just a little bit, yeah, just a little bit about field safety um, and just the importance of it. And I just want to plug, there is a handbook called the Interact Field Guide. Uh, Basically, it is a great resource if you've never done field work before. And it sort of really provides a nice itemized review of, of sort of what is important in terms of your preparation, but also how you conduct yourself in the field. And so if uh, you want more information, it's, it's free, you can download it and uh, online. And so if you do want to get a little bit more information about sort of what you need to do to prepare for the field, that's great. Also, Apex, the 
Alpine Cryosphere Group are also trying to create a similar guide, but this is specific to mountain build work rather than just sort of polar polar stuff. Um, and so definitely check that out when it comes. It's not out yet, but uh, when it does come out, check that out because that is also really important. So always check your resources um, and always reach out to people that perhaps have been into the environments that you've been in before to ask for some advice and things like that, because I think that it can make a massive difference to how successful and enjoyable your field work is because that's the most important thing you need to do it safely but also have fun because that's why we're here if you send me a link we can share that when we uh put the podcast out so these are yep check out these field guides and i can show you say the best thing about being a phd network and apex and stuff like that is you can ask other people who've already done yeah exactly yeah yeah uh, yeah, so do that okay excellent that brings us to the end of another episode of polar times thank you so much everyone for listening please don't forget to like rate and subscribe to polar times on all of your little podcast apps you can uh, contact us if you have a question for a polar individual or if you have a guest recommendation someone you who you'd like to hear from we have an email, so the email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Yeah, it's all, it will all be in the little uh, you know, descriptions on every episode. Uh, you can also contact Apex if you like uh, on tweet, tweet them, I think is the best way, um, at polar underscore research is the, is the handle. So, yeah, thanks for listening. And all that remains is for me to thank my guest, Elizabeth Orr. Thank you for joining me today. It's been absolutely yeah. Thank you very much, Jack. I really appreciate it. It's been it's been nice to talk about some some things with you. So thank you very much. It's a great podcast. <laughs> Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.